Hi, and thank you for tuning in to Compound Performance Radio. We're your hosts, Matt Domney and Kyle Dobbs. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoy the show. All right, everybody, thank you for joining us on today's episode of Compound Performance Radio. Uh, today, Kyle is out, so we are going to be joined by his much worse replacement, Craig Owen. Um, expect Craig to be quiet and nervous for the majority of the podcast, but he is here. So just so you guys know, he will be joining us today. Um, and for our guest, we have uh, Derek Miles from Barbell Medicine. If you guys follow him on Instagram, his Instagram is Derek underscore Barbell Medicine. And Derek has a great ability to compare the state of training and rehab to smoking meats, which is how I first found you. And it's been a great follow ever since. So Derek, thank you for joining us. And if you want to take a minute to introduce yourself, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I am a physical therapist based out of Cincinnati, Ohio. I have been with Barbell Medicine for three years now in the pain and rehabilitation division. Prior to that, I was at Stanford Children's in Prior to that, the University of Florida is where I did my residency and then practiced for the first decade of my career. So it's a pretty pretty stacked resume, sir. <laughs> How did you get started with uh, Barbell Medicine? Um, actually, weirdly, uh, social media commentary versus some individuals who uh, had some fallacious claims is what I would say in the most uh, charitable sense. It, it actually started with the entire Asian thing. Uh, the which one? The adhesion thing. That oh, okay. Yeah. Building into cooking with adhesions, uh, where some individuals were claiming that they could one palpate adhesions and then two change them with some manual techniques. And I had interacted with Austin and Jordan a little bit prior and got a message. It was like, hey, we're discussing this if you want in. And of course, I mean, why would I miss that? Uh, jumped in, started having some evidence conversations with the other individual that, uh, you know, I'm sure his version of it's a little different than mine, but uh, then moved to California and was pretty close to Jordan and him and I went and met up a few times. He asked if I wanted to start the pain and rehab division with Mike. So that's pretty awesome. I mean, that's a, that's a, one of the, the cool things about Instagram is how it can bring uh, people together and like increase somebody's opportunities like that. Um, but the fitness Instagram I'm sure that you've seen is just becoming a, a horrific shit show of just sadness and awfulness. <laughs> I, I wish that one day a year we had a like switch account day where, cause at this point I I've realized that I have selected for likely a little bit more of an evidence-based crowd. And I see things occasionally and then go to their followers and like, wow, this has obviously some traction. And I, I think it would be fun if like you and I switched Instagram feeds for a day, just so you could see how different our perspectives on, on like what comes across our screen is. And especially, you know, I, I think everyone on this podcast is relatively in the same Venn diagram. If you start getting some circles that didn't touch, I'm sure some people would wake up and be like, holy hell, like, where is this coming from? I've never been exposed to this good or bad before. Yeah. That is one of the craziest things is when you go to, like, if you're hanging out with somebody who doesn't train or doesn't lift or doesn't exercise and you look at their Instagram feed compared to yours and it's like, oh my God, we are in totally different universes. Like, I can't even, I don't even know how we can have a conversation about some of this stuff. You know, I've never thought about it until right now, but normally when I go to someone's house, one of my favorite things to do is go look at their bookshelf. Yeah. And I almost feel like now I want to be like, Hey man, can I like scroll your Insta feed for a minute just to like figure out <laughs> where our, where our alignments are. So if there's anybody single out there, that might be some good dating advice. If you go on a date with somebody for the first time, like, let me see your Instagram feed. Do you follow any of this bullshit stuff? No. Okay, good. We can continue this. <laughs> but then, you know, you get into that conversation of, or are you just like further siloing yourself against it now? You know, if it's like, magiccrystals.com might want to run the other direction but you know if it's some of the other fitness things that are uh let's just call them flashy and void of content um you know it, it could be an opportunity to have some conversations so for sure absolutely yeah but i think the uh the the magic crystals one and the astrology crowd are ones that it's like okay i'm gonna i'm just gonna see you out yeah i don't need saturn in retrograde anytime soon <laughs> So what does your day-to-day -day look like uh, being a PT in Cincinnati? So mostly right now, I'm 
do barbell medicine work. So that's either okay. generating content, um, doing one-on-one -on -one consultation or programming for rehabilitation clients. And, and we kind of have filled this really awesome, well, it's not awesome that it was a void, but it's been great to be in the market for it, where athletes a lot of times go to an orthopedic physical therapist who not really skilled in working with athletes. And we almost get this homeopathic dosing. And, you know, if it is all relative, I, I had an individual who tore his adductor squatting 700 plus and ended up undergoing surgery. And, you know, six weeks out, we're squatting 185, which, you know, for a lot of people, and even myself initially had a little trepidation, but when you think about the fact that's like maybe RPE one for him, like it, it is like in, it starts being relative. Whereas if you go to the average therapist, odds are, you know, you're not touching a barbell until maybe 20 weeks. And by then, you know, a lot of other sequelae have happened that isn't ideal. And then even in like, what I think is kind of the most fun are the individuals who like status post ACL reconstruction, who, whether the therapy was good or bad for the first 12 weeks, our return to sport criteria really isn't until about nine months. You need to be checking boxes and you really should be training at that point. And it's almost like, you know, people who want to work with professional athletes, like super high level athletes, like good. I never want to be that person because there's already like so many thoughts, priors we have to work through. And not only that, there's like 50 other people trying to give this person ideas. But if you give me an athlete with like all this raw potential from a novice standpoint, and we get to shape that, like that is a thousand times more fun. And I think that's part of why I've gravitated more towards the youth athlete training as well, just because I think the sooner you can instill some of these training paradigms and just the overall heuristics of being active, uh, resistance training is okay. You know, you have all these gains to make early in life. You know, you're not fighting that uphill battle from someone who's already, you know, been in the workforce, hasn't, or, or of course they bench 405 in high school, but haven't touched a barbell since then. And then, you know, we're trying to get back to that. And then all they're doing is comparing themselves to their 405 bench. I think that's a, that, that's definitely a really cool um, a niche to start filling um, and an area where you can have a lot of impact and do a lot of, a lot of good um, is definitely youth ath athletics, because this is one of the areas where if you can catch them young and you can start dispelling a lot of the myths that people see now, um, I think that's a really a, an area where you can set them up for a tremendous amount of success like down the line, because we always have like, and uh, as people that, as coaches that know other people that don't train or that don't exercise or that don't do things, like how many times have you guys heard um, family members or friends say like, well, I don't squat because it's bad for my knees. And like in 20 years, we'll see how you feel. Whereas like now, if you're getting involved with the youth athletes, you can start to work on dispelling some of those myths and be like, listen, you're probably going to be okay. This is probably going to be a helpful thing for you. Your bone strength is going to increase. Your ligament strength is going to increase. Muscle mass is going to increase, which is generally protective over the rest of the, uh, over the remainder of the body. And this is a good thing for you to be doing. So I think that could be a, that's a really cool um, niche to fill and a really cool thing that you can do that you're, that you're doing right now. Yeah, and, and some of it is really no fault of the individual who's kind of been put in that position because, mm -hmm. you know, I, being a high school coach or especially a high school strength coach in much of the country is a pretty thankless job. Yeah. It's, you know, you were interested in doing it. Odds are you were an ex-athlete and, and that qualifies you for the role. And that's entirely not a knock against them, but that really isn't coming upon those of us who are, are trying to put out information to try and, and really put things out that these individuals can digest and hopefully incorporate into their program. Yeah. And so it almost comes down to sometimes with the messaging, like, you know, you have to ask yourself, if I, am I aiming for a clinician to read this? Am I aiming for a coach to read this? Or am I aiming for like the lay person to read this? And I think even from someone who's been writing for six years now, that development has taken a while. In the beginning, it was more clinician based. And it is almost funny to think about the fact, you know, there is X amount of PTs and then there's probably a three or three time multiplier for coaches and probably a hundred time multiplier for individuals. So if you really want to like get the message out where I, where, where we need to be aiming is more towards the parents, you know, the strength coaches, things like that. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that's one of those, one of those things too, that I, I respect about your Instagram and the way that you, you post a lot of this content is very minimal, like industry jargon and very easy to, to break down the content that you're looking at, because we have like the, the whole, the whole, like, like we talked about the, the cooking with adhesion series, where you're literally showing an example of like, this is what the fascia of a brisket looks like. Here's how I'm manually releasing it with a gigantic knife that I then have to trim it off with. It's one of those things that it, it gives people an instant visual representation of what it actually is. And it seems, and it seems to be a really easy way for you to disseminate a lot of really good content with a good visual aid that backs it up nicely. Yeah, and, and when I first started doing it, it, it was, I think, out of frustration for some of the messaging that other people were putting out. Because mm -hmm. when it like fascia is the lowest hanging fruit out of this, or the adhesion conversation, to where you know individuals will have that picture of it looking like a web and it makes it look super fragile, but you don't realize that's under like five inches of tissue and you had to, you know, slice open five other things and then peel back in order to get there. And it's so since I moved to Cincinnati, the other thing I started doing because I'm just a cynic and wanted to go learn is working in a butcher shop. And I really wish the like third day that we were butchering cows, I could have recorded the butcher's face when I told her about cooking with adhesions as you know, one of us is on a, a thigh, like pushing down as hard as we can. The other is sitting there trying to trim back a chuck and you're, you're like, yeah, there's absolutely no way this works. Yeah, it's the it's the the massage gun though. Have you ever tried one of those? Those those ones are definitely the ticket. That one definitely works. I had this conversation with an athlete <laughs> yesterday, and it's just it's so funny to see like fitness walks this line between are, are we going to take it from a BDSM shop or are we going to take it from Home Depot? And then like somehow if you could combine those two things and charge five times as much for it. I mean, gains for days. I actually saw one advertised on Instagram uh, two or three years ago that was actually like a legitimate like Home Depot Black & Decker jigsaw that they put a little like black ball on for you to do the massage, like the, the self-massage the self with. It's like, oh, this is actually just a power tool. Like why am I, why am I paying 250 bucks for this thing? Yeah, it's what I told the athlete yesterday. It was like, Go to Home Depot, go get yourself a jigsaw, take the apparatus off and attach a racquetball to it. And there you go. I just <laughs> saved you $200. And you can go like actually use that to cut something later if you have a project going on at the house. Exactly. So, it's dual purpose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of this is this, I think, desire to like, tell stories and sell. And it's really hard just to be like, yeah, man, you're going to be okay. Yeah. If it's almost, you have to create this mountain that, that you have to leave them up in order to, you know, take them over to the other side. Um, I, I was just, I, I spoke at our national sports conference two weeks ago in Indianapolis. And as I was writing up what I was going to say, I kept going back to my hatred for the building bridges and tools in our toolbox and all those metaphors. And it really is one of those, like, I really wonder how many of these bridges we need to build are over canyons that we dug. It's almost like we take the material out and then build the bridge with it. And they're like, oh, look, problem solved. And when we could have just foregone that entire step. Do you have any examples of uh, something that you think where we've dug the canyon to then build the bridge? Oh man, I think low back pain is one of the easiest ones to start with. Okay. And it is, if you look at a lot of what goes on, we have created an industry now to where the standard for seeking care or seeking recovery or just looking for a solution is very low. Like I, I tweak my back deadlifting, I need to go get an MRI. And, or even I need to go get a massage. Yeah. And it's like, nah, man, like give it a few days, keep moving. But you can't like in my least charitable, you can't monetize that. And on top of that, it's really hard because when people come to see you, they want a solution. And if the solution is give it 96 hours, like a lot of people are frustrated by that. And 
this, you almost have to have a unified front in order for it to work because all it takes is a few morons that are, you know, of the mentality of like, we need to send you to the answer donut immediately. And all of a sudden that starts taking off. And, you know, if you look at even there, there's a great paper, I think by Lutz from like 15 years ago, that is basically a historical conversation of low back pain and directly related to what imaging we just discovered. So in the early days, we had x-rays. So you had Williams who wanted to blame pain all on being on the facets. And so all low back pain was facet-oriented pain because we could see that on x-ray. So everyone needed to do flexion-based exercises. And then you got MRIs and everything was discogenic low back pain. And now we need to do everyone into extension because that's the way that we originally thought that you could anteriorly translate a disc. And I mean, I was in school, I graduated in 2008 and the stuff was still being taught. So it's not like this has really went away. Yeah. And then we started getting fMRIs and then everything is in your periaqueductal gray or, or whatever level. And really it, we forget that pain is a lot more complicated than that. And we end up just dialing up something that likely would have been like taking care of itself in, in a short period of time. And, and that's not to say that there aren't instances where it doesn't, and, and you certainly need to seek care. But if we take something that's relatively mundane and all of a sudden make a big deal out of it and then offer some solution out of it, then, you know, I, I, I would argue that's problematic. I, I used to, when Mike and I first started teaching together, have a slide that was Granny Mae Clampett from the Beverly Hillbillies because there was this mm -hmm. episode where she had the, this cold cure. And she concocted and was trying to sell it to all the people in Beverly Hills. And this investor bought into it. And she was like, yeah, you know, you, you take it three times a day. It tastes like shit. And in seven to 10 days, you're better. And you're like, well, that sounds a lot like a lot of rehab things. Like, hey, do this painful stimulus on a, a minor ache and give it a week or two and you'll be fine. Like, did I need whatever the fancy toy was? So... I think that's an interesting narrative that's come out um, and it seems to be just gaining more and more steam um, is that you should, as a human who's, who lifts or trains or does anything, you should never, ever feel any sort of discomfort other than maybe some minor muscular soreness. And it's one of those things where like, at least in the, in the, in the circles of people that I, I follow for content ideas, um, it seems to be like very, very prevalent that any sort of like discomfort is immediately like a bad sign and immediately not a good thing. What would you say to people who are, who like develop such a, such a scared or like a, like an avoidance mindset around anything that can be semi, like semi uncomfortable? Well, most of the time it is more letting them talk it out. And because it's one thing to just be like, no, nah, you just need to calm down because that's obviously the most effective way to get someone to calm down. Mm -hmm. it, it is <laughs> like, where, where are you at right now? And where did you come about those beliefs? And depending on where it is, sometimes you can kind of turn it to where they can see how that's not a great idea. Yeah. Like if you had this idea that you should never be like the individuals who talk about like never hurting in training, like, I really want to know if they just feel phenomenal day to day. Cause I've just never met an individual in any walk of life that just wakes up in the sunshine and rainbows every day. And they're actually getting better. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> you know, in, it is kind of how we perceive all of this. If, if I felt good for like three straight months, I would probably find myself needing to reevaluate my training program and be like, wow, I've either been taking it way too easy or like I, I found the girl in crystals.com who put mercury back in retrograde. So. <laughs> she slipped a piece of uh, pyrite into your pocket when you weren't looking and that's why you feel good. Well, you see the knurling on my bars made out of sapphire. Oh, okay. So it's just in your system now. It's just shaving yeah. off into your hands. That's perfect. Yeah. But yeah, I think, that, I think that's a really good uh, point that you bring up about trying to address and meet people where they are uh, because there are people from all, like everybody, everybody wants to train and everybody wants to be better. And a lot of people are trying to get more into fitness now, especially fortunately with, with what happened with the, with, with COVID last year, everybody who was locked down and bored at home 
I have friends who've never exercised a day in their life who were messaging me for like workout tips and training tips and things like that. So it was a very good thing that a lot of people are starting to get more, more into this. But at the same time, that also seems to be uh, one of the things that kind of perpetuates this fear of any sort of discomfort or movement. So I think that point of trying to meet people where they are is a, is a really useful thing for anybody who's trying to have a conversation with somebody about um, discomfort or pain or anything that they may be feeling. Well, and it's interesting because the further I've gotten kind of into this profession and especially into the niche of individuals with training, the more whenever I see someone in clinic and they are highly interested in training, um, one of my first questions is who do you follow and who do you get your information from? Because I'm trying to like hedge my bets on like where they're going to be. But it kind of, it sucks because then it's incumbent upon me to know what a lot of the idiots are saying. And so it, it kind of slows down. I, I would love to never have to read a dry needling paper again. My life would be phenomenal. However, like I have said, this is the hill I'm going to die on and I, I'm willing to fight this battle. And so I probably spend two hours a week just reading dry needling research. And that is, you know, it, it, it's like the, uh, it's the GPP of, uh, of my academic training. It's something that I don't look forward to doing, but it's a necessary evil every week. Well, we got to get it done so we can, we can be further prepared to have arguments with clients. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and I don't even look at it anymore. as like arguments. It's just yeah. trying to figure out like where their perspective is. And it's like, how, how did you get here? Like, take me on this journey with you for a minute. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because if you look at, where like the follower count for a lot of these pages are it it's i often like make the analogy to my teenage athletes like it's like music everything on the radio sucks but it's the most easily accessible thing out there so it's where you're going to start but if you actually want to hear some decent music you've got to go looking for it it's the exact same thing with training advice if you google bigger biceps i'm willing to bet nine out of ten times that advice is awful but you know it, it, you have to be able to like make it to page three of Google as it is. And, you know, I think that's actually where the like beginning of the event horizon of a black hole begins, but you know. If you were, if you were talking to a consumer of information, um, what would you, what would you give them as like some ways to arm themselves to deal with some of the, 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 the bullshit? Like, is there any questions that you uh, teach patients of yours to ask themselves to like critically assess um, what's going on with, uh, content that they're consuming? I, I normally give them some, if they're highly interested, I give them some resources that <laughs> I, I think are very beneficial. Um, some of which, uh, you know, I will happily plug Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow book. I, I feel like that should be required reading around like sophomore year of high school, just so you have that, you, you become a little more self-aware of your mm -hmm. own faults. Um, the You Are Not So Smart podcast, excellent for kind of the same type of topic. And, you know, it is, I think you naturally have to come to that conclusion of starting to question things. Um, I would love to say, hey, go look at this statistical analysis where they explain things to you. But let's face it, no one's going to do that. Yeah. But if you can start learning, you know, not maybe how to calculate a confidence interval, what a confidence interval means, I think that's much more beneficial to the lay person. And, I think it often just depends on kind of where they are in the journey as well. If, if you're just starting, a lot of it is just having conversations to get you to question anything, even if it's questioning me. Like I had an athlete yesterday who, the one who was on the Theragun, and he was questioning me about that, questioning me about trigger points, you know, and just kind of going through it. And, you know, as someone who's trying to make some changes, I need to be able to sit there and like entertain those questions and do my best to like answer them in a way that like maybe doesn't give him the answer, but makes him question himself a little bit more too. You know, in this course that Mike and I teach, uh, it's, it's set up to where I hope you leave if you attend it on Sunday with more questions than answers, because really none of us have it figured out yet. And the more of us that are like looking and especially like diligently looking for the answers, higher likelihood someone's going to come across something 
that is useful to the entire group. And it is kind of building that entire network out of it to where, you know, I also would happily never read another shoulder paper for the rest of my life, just not that interested on a joint by joint approach. But I have friends that are highly interested in that and I've developed networks to where, you know, if it's something that needs my attention and is really worth the read, they'll kick it my way. So it just serves as just another filter that helps me get where I'm trying to go faster. That's cool though. I, I, I like that. Um, I like that advice, especially with what you said about the, the course that you and Michael are teaching where you want people to come out with more questions than answers. Um, it seems to be one of the ways that, I mean, this is just how it always goes is like, like for, for market, from just a marketing perspective, the easiest way for people to sell and to get people into whatever course or program or three letter acronym that they're trying to sell is to promise somebody that they're going to have all of the answers. But oftentimes uh, people who promise to have all of the answers have all of the answers to their specific problem. And they don't have all of the answers to all of the problems and they're not going to be able to adjust and fix everything. So I think the fact that you're, you're having people come out and just try to critically assess more things than they would think of otherwise is a, is a, is a cool thing. And what, like, what is, what is one of your guys' main strategies to work on getting people to uh, question things like that? I think you can do it a couple of different ways. I, I like running into dead ends in the evidence in, in, because I would like to think I'm perceived as someone who does read a lot and has a decent understanding of what the literature says. And I think it's important to stand up in front of everyone and show where I've run into dead ends. Mm-hmm. And if you look in the hip lecture, so if you have something that would be categorized as like a hip tendinopathy, the current evidence would say we should be doing some form of heavy, slow resistance training. But if you look at that, the only real papers we have that justify that treatment paradigm are based on patellar and Achilles tendinopathy. So there's nothing directly studying gluteal, hamstring, adductor tendinopathy. We just extrapolate that. And I think it's important to stand up in front of people and be like, this trial doesn't exist yet. And I am, I am overstepping or trying to infer based off of what the literature says to another joint. And, you know, I think steps like that are, are good ways of showing that one, I don't have all the answers and two, we as a collective don't have the answer yet. Um, I also talk a lot about standing ovation theory, um, and that basically is the too long didn't read it, what makes you go with the group and, and what is that tipping point that's going to make you adopt a new intervention, mm-hmm. because I, I think it is important to be self-aware of there are instances where you are going to go along because everyone else is doing, but the more you can have these like self-reflective moments of what would it take to get me there? The better you are at being self-aware when that question presents itself. And I think a lot of times what ends up happening is we go do this new thing and then we enjoy the group we're doing it with and we do it a little bit more, we do it a little bit more. And eventually there's enough of a gap to where you can't see how you ended up in the current state. It's just, it was. No, that's very interesting. Um... Yeah, no, that's it's that's a it's a it's a cool thing to be to be looking at doing with with people. So I, I if you want to plug that course, feel free. I mean, that's is, unless it's already sold out. Um, no, we have a few spots left for Gainesville. Um, it's actually on the twenty third, so like eleven days from now. So I don't know how. Okay, close so this actually, actually, actually should be out by out. the this should yeah. be out by then. Yeah, and yeah, and we'll be, be teaching um, in the spring some as well. We're trying to get a few set up there. And we have uh, continuing education for PTs and chiros now. So we're trying to be a little bit better on that end. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I mean, one of, the, one of the things that you guys have always been and the, the, the way that I look at uh, barbell medicine is you guys always do a really good job of being super objective with the data and everything that you're looking at, right? So you guys will are usually the first people that will say that you don't have the answer to a certain question, but this is the best that you currently have. And I think that's a, that's a, that's a thing that doesn't get as much respect as it should in a lot of the fitness community now, because people are looking, like you said, they're looking for simple answers and they're looking for simple stories. And the fact that simple stories don't actually exist for some of these complex problems 
makes it a really, really interesting thing to see when people promise that they have the answer. Yeah, and well, I think part of it is everything works on the novice. And most of the individuals we are exposed to are novice. I mean, depending on the paper you cite, between 20 and 26% of Americans are meeting physical activity guidelines. Mm -hmm. So that means you have a three in four chance of getting somebody that you can put on the most asinine program in the world, and they're still going to see results out of it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's like one of the things that I always tell some of the newer coaches that we deal with in our, in our mentorship is if you have somebody who's a brand new client, it almost doesn't really matter what you're making them do because they're going to get better and they're going to progress anyway, as long as you're not overloading them and you're not pushing them too far beyond their individual capacity. Like you've got the, the, the floor is yours. You can do tons of stuff with them. Um, and everybody's trying to get into these like really complex, like Russian periodization schemes for a guy who's trying to lose 30 pounds. And it's like, I don't think you need to worry about that. I think he just needs to show up and focus on some consistency. Yeah. But I think that is, it's hard to, I think you go through a phase, you hit that initial, I know nothing as a coach. And then you think you have it all figured out. And then you go through that, like, well, most people hopefully go through that moment of despair of like, holy crap, I know nothing. And then I think when you come out the second side of it, you realize how simple a lot of it is, but you had to go through that first process in order to be able to properly simplify it. Yeah. That value and, despair in the Dunning-Kruger effect is awful, by the way. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you have to well, it. Yeah. It's, it's really funny. Like when I, I really like teaching students and working with new grads and giving them a simple answer and then being like, okay, well, here's like the 15 layers that went into saying yes here. And, it, and because it, it does come across as, yeah, I'm really confident in this, but it is how much that needle shifted on my probability to get me to that yes, no. Mm -hmm. oh, that's very interesting. Um, Craig, you think it's time for our, our question? Do it. All right. So we talk, we, I briefed you about this one off air, Derek. Um, and I'm going to leave plenty of time for this one because I'm sure there'll be some fireworks for this, for this question, but our only scripted question, um, is what do you see in this, in, in fitness in social media or in like the rehab industry, um, that you hate more than anything? Like what's the number one pet peeve? And obviously we can't say fascia because we've just been talking about that for quite a while. Um, overconfidence. Okay. I think that's the thing that absolutely drives me the most crazy. And we've touched on that already. When you asked me prior to the episode, like what gets my blood pressure up more than anything else is the, this is the way and not appreciating that it's your way. It may not be someone else's way. Odds are your way is not really stable. If we start breaking down its component parts. And I think part of it is in the rehab realm, especially, there's always a little bit of a pushback when someone says that this is ultimately a sales job. And it is like, you could be the smartest coach, the smartest physical therapist, the smartest chiropractor in the world. And if you can't convince people to do what they need to do, you're not worth a shit. Yeah. But the problem is the other side of that coin, like you can not be worth a shit and be really good at convincing people. And that side of the equation tends to generate a lot of problems and that I think it is what angers me more than anything else because it is the like I get it I, I I understand that it's easier to sleep at night if we go in and we say we have this all figured out but we don't and a lot of this we overcomplicate so much just to like talk someone into doing the most basic thing and you know to go back to it, not that many Americans are meeting physical activity guidelines. So it, we don't need to create this like Russian periodization program. It's like, hey man, did you do a little bit more than you did yesterday? Or like, my favorite question is, what do you wanna do? Like, I, I'm not here to design a program for you that is, you know, in the barbell medicine theme, but you don't wanna be a power lifter. 
Like I've had plenty of clients via barbell medicine. They're like, I just want to work on becoming more active. It's like, all right, well, what equipment do you have at the house? What do you want to do? And what are your goals? And I think that even part of your goals question is so important just because a lot of people don't know. Like, I want to be more fit. I want to be more toned. Like, that's, that's not a goal. Like, that, that's this ambiguous ether thing. Like, we need some parameters we need to work on. Okay, I want to be more consistent about training. All right, well, we're going to shoot for four out of seven days a week. If we hit 58% compliance over the course of this month and you were at 35% last month, that's progress. Yeah, that's a 13% improvement. And you are doing good and you're on the right track. That's yeah. that's definitely the thing that we see in in coaching is, I mean, obviously you see it too, but the, the overconfidence of some people who are, either completely unproven or have like, they don't really, they're very limited in their scope and very limited in what they've seen or what they've done, um, who are trying to espouse that the way that they do one thing is the way that everybody should be doing everything. And it's like you said about the, the whole, like physical activity guidelines with the fact that Americans don't do this as much, it don't, aren't as active as they should be or nowhere near as active as they should be. We have to ask ourselves if we are raising more barriers than we're lowering. And it seems to be the the way that everybody wants to go now is to raise as many barriers as we can so that you have to pay me to make sure that you're exercising safely or you're going to die. Well, I would even take that a step further and say, even within the powerlifting community, sometimes we erect too many barriers to keep people powerlifting and start like making fun of other movements or other styles. And it is funny, like if you look at the recommendations for early sports specialization, it's you shouldn't be doing more than eight months of any sport a year. You shouldn't be mm -hmm. participating in more hours of sport than you are years old, um, which, you know, if you're 50, good on you. You could be a, a full-time professional athlete at that point. But I think there is something to that like eight-month thing and it is some time should be devoted to developing some other skills. Like, I think it's really funny that, you know, we'll start talking about these people being a peak athlete. And you know, like, when's the last time this individual jumped? And right. if you're talking about a power lifter, like the answer is probably not in a while. Yeah. I don't even know how to spell that word. <laughs> yeah. And it's not to say that like, oh my God, we need to develop this huge plyometric program, but like, hey, maybe we should do something like in the athletic realm every now and then. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, it's a weird thing, like you said, too, that it, the specialization only seems to matter for youth athletes and nobody seems to care about that for adults or other sports. Well, I would say probably out of my powerlifting clients uh, doing rehab stuff, it, it is that like, conversation of there's more to life than SPD. Like, believe it or not, you can do another exercise and it's not going to magically steal your gains. And I think a lot of times the problem is we get the individuals, like I'm sure everyone on this call, if you look at compared to humanity, all three of us are in the 99th percentile of strength. The problem is it's a nonlinear scale. So the difference between the 99 and the 99.93 is like four standard deviations. And, and we end up comparing ourselves to those people because that's who we see on Instagram or, or who we see doing these crazy things. But, you know, I have a couple of athletes that like work 60 hours a week in a manual labor job and then want to be excellent at some cardiovascular training and excellent at uh lifting I'm like dude there's only so many hours in the day like at a certain point like we can't control for all of these variables and i think a lot of times people just fail to see how good they're doing compared to the average because they're comparing themselves to the tip of the spear yeah that's definitely a a, a really solid point too um because we Craig and I talk about that. I have clients that talk about that with me all the time. In addition to like, like Craig, like, we'll just, they'll send me like a bench PR that they did. And then they'll send me a bench, P like, like Ashton Ruska, just benching 200 kilos for like a set of three at like an RPE six. And they're like, why am I not here yet? I'm like, 
did you deadlift over 500 pounds at 16 years old and look like an IFBB pro when you were in high school? No. Okay. Then we're not talking about the same thing. Yeah, it, it is. It, it's such an odd concept that we're always kind of stuck in this like comparison. And, and this is what I think social media is really like awful at is, you know, back in the eighties, probably before we had this, we had the phenomenon of, like the athlete in high school thought he was awesome because he came from a rural town and he was the best around. Yeah. And now that same athlete who probably should feel a little bit better about himself is comparing himself to some dude running trend, you know, pulling a thousand pounds. Yeah. And I, I think that is almost like a worse problem because it's even more discouraging yeah. to get people to start it off. Oh, it's absolutely very discouraging. Like I've had, I've had conversations with multiple people who are strong and they're very strong for like, from where they've been and where they're going and where they, like where they are now. And I tried to talk to them about like competing because they can, they train SBD and they train like a power lifter and their goal is to train like somebody who power lifts. And every single time we talk about getting into a competition, it's no, I can't, I'm not strong enough. It's like, you're looking at the, like, you're looking at like Lydia Baviol squatting 430 pounds at 120 pounds. Like you can't compare yourself to her. Like that's not a thing. Well, it's funny because, you know, if I was offered the chance to go play in a scrimmage game with a bunch of NBA players, I'd run my ass out on the court so fast. It would be fun because it's there for the experience. Yeah. And like, I mean, if I scored two points, that would be impressive, but I still got to go do it. And if you look at that, like, hey, man, you want to go sign up for this powerlifting meet? Like, no, nah, I'm going to get shown up by everybody else. Yeah, man, but did you go out there and do something? Yeah. Like, all right, you got the story now. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the things I think that uh, is the thing that's making powerlifting a bit more successful and a bit more prevalent lately is that people are starting to realize that it is that when they go and they show up to a meet that it's not about – me versus you or you versus Craig or Craig versus me. It's about all of us doing the best that we can. And like, I'm going to support you. You're going to support me. And like, we're both going to shit on Craig because he sucks. That's right. Yeah. And I, I mean, so, dude, I mean, like I, I tell everyone that like, that I st- that I like work with, you know, locally at the gym and stuff, like no one wants to do it because they're all embarrassed. No one wants to like be shown up by someone they don't know about. And I keep, I, I beg people, just, you come watch me. You don't even have to do it. Just come and see what it's like and see how much fun you could have. Whereas they're stuck, like even kind of bring this full circuit of what we talked about earlier, where they're stuck in their Instagram feed, looking at the strongest people doing the thing that they want to do, but they won't actually do it. They won't even try. So it's really like, I, I like I'm with you. I, I, I want to pull people out of that as quickly as I can. And, you know, it, it's really funny when you look at like the average powerlifting meet because it's the difference in did you get the $50 Chili's gift card or the $25 Chili's gift card? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it's, it's not like we're, you know, pulling for a Lambo here. Like, yeah. it, and I, I think that's part of it is <laughs> there is this like predisposition to like taking yourself too seriously. And like, I always like love it in the worst way when I get the athletes that are or that I'm coaching through rehab and they're like talking about going to war or like trying to hype themselves up I'm like nah man nah you are not like my my favorite and and I'll show a hand here if anyone's ever coached by me because I'm kind of notorious for doing this to my athletes um my favorite coaching story of all time, there's a weightlifting coach uh, out of North Carolina named Nick Horton, who I love, one of the smartest individuals I've ever met. And he tells this story about an athlete coming in, he's got a, a single snatch that he's supposed to hit. He misses the first one, gets like really angry, starts storming around the gym, misses the second one, face gets even more red, misses the third one. At this point, he's just raging in the gym. And Nick walks up to him, just calm, because I don't think Nick ever gets angry about anything. It's like, dude, if you don't hit this next snatch, I'm gonna kill a fucking panda. <laughs> and the guy like did exactly what you did. And you almost have to have that like like that catharsis of like letting it out. So like I, I do this all the time now. If I get an athlete who's just doing that, their program is titled the Panda Preservation Society. 
So <laughs> that's awesome. That's a that's a good idea though, especially because so many people get so wrapped up in 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 turning their numbers or their SBD lifts or whatever it is that they're trying to compete in into their entire identity. And it's yeah. just, we're lifting weights. Cool, man. That, that's awesome. Good on you. Like it's, yeah. I'm, I'm going to go cook a brisket now. <laughs> so it's, it, I think that the problem though, then when you start like overvaluing these things, then when you can't do it, you're like, well, what else do I go do now? Yeah. And, you know, I, I talk about this a lot in the youth realm of, I think we've gotten so far away from sport for the sake of sport and turning everything into competition that you look at athletes and you get like a 16 year old and they're just playing baseball. There's not that many 30 year old baseball players. There's not that many 30 year old basketball players, but you know, at a certain point, if you finish and you're done being coached and you never understood how to go do it yourself, you get out and you're like, well, what do I do now? Like my entire identity was doing this thing. And now I don't even understand how to train on that. Oh, that's a huge problem for sure. That's absolutely a huge problem. Do you have any, what, what a, would we be able to ask you like what a conversation that you have with an athlete looks like when you have somebody who's reaching that position or um, reaching that kind of pivotal moment? Uh, a lot of times it, it's trying to gauge kind of where their interest and where their burnout is. And I have conversations with youth athletes all the time that involve just out of the gate. Is this still fun for you? And I think it's important to be explicit about that because, you know, if you've had somebody who's been in a sport for 12 years and they're just coming to the realization, they're probably not going to play in college. Like we need to pivot to something else pretty quickly. That way you still have some value in what yeah. you're doing. And for the other athletes, uh, you know, I've probably already had a couple conversations with athletes this week about just explaining to them like how how good they are at what they're doing and they need to stop comparing themselves to other people. And I mean, I, I'm comfortable saying I have a, a relatively blunt communication style, so I'd really just kind of like throw it out there and get on with life. And I, I can't recall the entire narrative off of it but i've also talked to an athlete this week that's just like dealing with a lot of crap and it's like hey man like i understand i, I program and most of our conversations are about technique but like if you need to unload do it i'm here for you and, and i think that's the other problem that kind of comes out of powerlifting sometimes is especially with kind of the advent of the garage gym phenomenon is it, it has taken away some of that social nature of the yeah. sport and individuals just aren't able to sit around and BS as much in between sets. And I, and I think that's a ridiculously important component to the entire train. Yeah. And so with my athletes, like I, I've never had a problem if they're like, yeah, man, I need to type out a life story or we need to hop on a zoom call and talk this out. Like, I think the best training I ever had for this wasn't a physiology class. It was tendon bar for a few years. So, Oh, definitely. I mean, if you can learn how to speak to people and you can learn how to, how to just keep a conversation flowing at a bar, you can do really well at any other job. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's that, that too. Like I actually, I have a, I have a really, really nice garage gym. Like I have everything that I could ever need and I never have to leave the house and I still choose to go to a, an actual physical gym anyway. And it's exactly what you said is, the thing that I noticed the most that I missed the most about everything that I would do in a gym was the ability to just sit and talk and communicate and bullshit with my peers and friends who are also training. Um, and that is something that a lot of people don't have anymore on social media because everybody's got their remote coach and everybody's got their program and everybody's got everything that they're doing. And nobody has like that sort of team environment that they had at the older gyms where everybody was working together on the same sort of thing. Um, and that would probably be something that should change. And I think it is starting to change a little bit because there's a lot more people that are, are like getting club coached by the same, um, by the same person who are all in the same like discord channel or, or Twitch thread or whatever. Like, I don't even know what the group chat or whatever it is that they're doing, but the in-person is a hugely important component to it. 
Yeah. And, you know, I, I think the entire social media side of things is great in some regards, but it really has made things a lot more like isolated in yeah. others. And there is something to that, like, you know, I, I'm sure you guys have had days where you go into the gym and you kind of feel like crap and you didn't even really want to be there. And if you're doing it at your home gym, you're just kind of grinding it out. But then if you're doing it with somebody, they start talking about something else and you just kind of hit the rhythm and get what you need to do. Those, and in peak COVID, those sessions would always take me about four hours that I didn't want to mm-hmm. do when I was at home. <laughs> yeah, I started at I'm nine and at one thirty. Yeah. Intimately familiar with those sessions. Yeah. So, um, yeah, in it, it, it's funny too, because, you know, I think all of us, if we went to the gym for four hours it, at a certain point, you would hit that switch of like, all right, come on. Like I need to knock this out and go home. Whereas when you're in the, <laughs> yeah, when you're in the garage, you're like, all right. Um, I mean, I don't really need to be anywhere. So <laughs> yeah, I guess I'll just go get some food and then come back in and hit another set and then, the, you know, rest <laughs> a little bit, watch some TV on the TV that I got mounted. It's nice. Mm-hmm until you have it to like be a human and do other things. It, it was really funny about probably six months into COVID. I started realizing this phenomenon among some of my athletes mm-hmm. and started like putting timed rest sets in between. Mm-hmm. And I like buried like five or six athletes just because it became obvious. They were taking like eight, nine minutes in between sets. Oh my God. And yeah. I cut them down. Yeah. And I cut them down to like three in the first session. They were like, I'm dead. Like, this is the worst training session of my life. I was like, you did this to you. I just called you one. <laughs> I just removed your ability to bullshit. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Derek, thank you very much for, uh, for joining us today. I think that was a, a valuable conversation. And I think people will get a lot out of it. So um, we appreciate your time. And if you would like to be found, um, if you have anything coming up that you want to plug or anything like that, feel free. This is your moment. Yeah, um, you can get a hold of me on Instagram, Derek underscore Barbara Medicine. I'm on Twitter very rarely at dmilespt. I don't have anything coming up outside of our Gainesville course. Unless you're a physical therapist, I will be speaking at the combined section meeting in San Antonio on ACL rehab in February. Cool. That's awesome. Well, Derek, thank you very much for uh, joining us and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Take care. Yeah, thanks, man. Thank you for tuning in to Compound Performance Radio. If you liked this episode, please be sure to like, share, subscribe, and drop us a review. We'll see you next time.